What we're going to look at tonight is one of the books of the Bible that as a young Christian, to be honest, I avoided like the plague at 2 Corinthians. Uh, As I read through that when I was young, 18, 20, 21, 25, 30, right around that age, I thought, what a downer. Why is Paul? Because Paul was angry when he wrote it. He was a little bit depressed when he wrote it. And, And so there's a lot of things that didn't really fit my picture of, you know, the happy Christian life where everything's just rocking and everything's just going the way you want it to go. And what happened through my life is over the years as I got a few bumps and bruises in life and I, I learned that, wow, there, there's a promise in the New Testament that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And I actually experienced that in my own life. And the more I went through that, the more I began to fall in love with this book of Second Corinthians. Um, by the way, did you guys pass out the sheets for them? Okay, uh, I, we're passing out some note sheets and some pens. I would really encourage you to take notes tonight because we're going to be covering some, I think, important doctrinal ground that is going to help you understand something called the New Covenant. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that. But honestly, I think a lot of Christians live their Christian lives as if Christ had never come. And let me explain what I mean by that. We, we see even the New Testament in the way that we see the Old Testament is a lot of rules that we need to live up to. And, and we're just trying our hardest to live the Christian life and always falling short which is exactly what the Jews did in the Old Testament. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians. We're going to be looking at two chapters, one tonight and one on Sunday. Tonight we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 4, and then next uh, on Sunday we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 2 through 5 I think is one of the most important scriptures for a Christian to understand for a number of reasons. Number one, it helps us see the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And before we go any further, I just want to talk about what I mean by these terms, the Old Covenant and the New, new Covenant. Um, the Old Covenant refers to the covenant or the contract. That's what a covenant is. It's a contract. The covenant that God made with Israel way back in Exodus. Now, the Old Covenant is called a conditional covenant. Let me explain that by reading the scriptures where this covenant was set up. Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. And if you're taking notes, write down this reference because it'll help you to kind of go back and review this. God says to Israel, or actually he's speaking to Moses who is then going to talk to Israel. He says, now therefore, if... You, in, you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you, Moses, shall speak to Israel. Now, the key word of the covenant of Exodus 19 is if. And so what God says to Israel is he says, if you obey me, I will bless you. 
And if you've ever read the, the book of Deuteronomy, it's, it's all about the blessings and curses of God. If you do this, you'll get this. But watch out. If you do this, then you'll, do th- you'll get this. That is the nature of the old covenant. I obey God, I get blessed. I disobey God, I get spanked. That's the way the Old Testament works. And, and so the interesting thing about the response of the people we jumped down to verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. So, so Moses laid out the law. And you know what the people said? No problem. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Wow, is that an arrogant thing to say? Oh, God, no problem. Whatever you've told us, we'll obey it all. And it took them not even 40 days to disobey the very first command that God gave them, not to have other gods before them. So their big, their big pronouncement of obedience lasted about a week and a half. And then Moses got down. They had to burn the, they had to ground it to powder. They had to drink gold water, which I don't think tastes very good. But the Old Covenant was what governed the Old Testament. And it's, I don't know if you read much of the Old Testament. It's actually fabulous to read. But it's so sad to read. You see the people doing good for a while. Ah, they're getting it. This is awesome. And then they blow it. And then they have to be judged by God. And then they do good for a little while. And then they blow it. And then they had to be judged by God. And it just, that's the Old Testament. I just finished reading, uh, actually studying the minor prophets. And it just broke my heart how God was saying, please stop worshiping other idols. I'm going to send you guys away to captivity. Stop doing this. And they kept doing it. And God had to smash them. And they, it's hard to exaggerate the pain that the people of Israel went through because they wouldn't obey God. And because it was a conditional covenant, it just didn't work for us. We are not good enough to live up to a contract with God. Because what's the basic uh, standard of God if we're going to be in a relationship? He says, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. I, I can't do, can you do that? I can't be holy. I mean, I'm actually starting with strike three. I'm already a sinner. I can't be holy. And so if, if that's God's standard, I'm out of luck. But what's so cool is even though the children of Israel disobeyed time and time the old covenant, rather than throwing away the children of Israel, God said, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. And so here's what Jeremiah 31 prophesies. He's, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's Exodus 19. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After these days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. And I will, be their, and I will write them on their hearts. 
and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will, I love this, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. The new covenant is the covenant that Jesus brought when he died on the cross. If you're taking notes again, write down Luke 22:20, because in that very first communion, Jesus said, this is the new covenant of my blood. So this new covenant we have is an unconditional covenant. If we choose to enter into this covenant with God, we are not saved or blessed by our good works anymore. We are saved and blessed by the good works of Jesus that he lived, when he lived on this earth. And now we participate in this. So this new covenant is pretty amazing. And what I want to do is I want to take you to 2 Corinthians 3. So if you've turned to 2 Corinthians, which you should have done already, uh, we're going to review very quickly to look at the differences between the old, tov- old covenant and the new covenant. Let's look at verse 6. Paul says that God made us, uh, excuse me, adequate as servants of a new covenant. So that's what you and I are. We, are. we are now not only participants in the new covenant, but we are servants or ministers of the new covenant. He says, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, first difference between the old covenant and new covenant. The old covenant was of the letter. In other words, it was a law written on paper, and you had to try to live up to it. Couldn't do it. The new covenant is a covenant of the Spirit. And so rather than God externally giving us a list of rules that we have to live up to, now he's put his Spirit in us to lead and guide us how how we should walk in today's world. The covenant of the letter, the covenant of the law, kills. That's a terrible thing to say. Why, why does the covenant of the law kill? Because no one can live up to it. No one can live up to the covenant of the law. And so the decree of not living up to the covenant of the law is death. But the new covenant brings life. Let's go on to verse 7. But at the ministry of death, in letters engraved on stones came with glory... So that the sons of Israel could not look intently in the face of Moses because of the glory of his his face fading as it was. How will the ministry of the Spirit be even more with glory? So here's the thing. The old covenant brought condemnation. All through the Old Testament, God said, this is what I wrote in the law and you guys aren't living up to it. So now I have to punish you. The new covenant instead brings righteousness. So God doesn't just say, oh, I'm not going to hold your sins against you. He actually gives us the righteousness of Christ. We also see in verses 17 and 18 that the new covenant brings liberty and intimacy. Let me just read these two verses. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. 
So now, rather than the, the slavery of trying to live up to the old covenant, oh, no, it's a Sabbath day. I can't walk more than a mile. Oh, my goodness. I can't. You know, if you've ever been to Israel and you're there on Saturday, they set all of the elevators on automatic run. You know why? Because to press a button is to strike the fire and to break the Jewish law. And I mean, my goodness, it, it, the law is perfect in the sense that it's a revelation of God's holiness. But in another sense, it's worse than the tax code. I mean, you have to figure out how do we live up to the Sabbath? How do we live up to all of these different laws that God wants us to do? Oh, no pork. God, I wanted a pulled pork sandwich. Can't do that. I want to, so I got to eat something else. I can't have, what is it? I can't have lobster. That's a terrible thing. But, you know, so all of these different complicated laws. But the Lord in the new covenant brings glory and liberty and intimacy. Now, I want to show you one more thing in verse 18. In verse 318. Paul writes, but we all with unveiled face. We don't have to hide ourselves from God anymore. And God doesn't have to hide himself from us. So there's no veil separating us from God anymore. Paul says, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Now let me explain this, because if you can catch this, it makes the Christian life a lot more fun. How do you grow in the Old Testament, or in the, under the Old Covenant? You just try harder. If you're sinning, you're not trying hard enough, so you try harder. And then you discover that trying harder isn't enough and you fail even more. How do you grow under the new covenant? You stand before the glory of the Lord and his glory changes you from the inside out. By the way, that's why worship is such an important part of our Christian growth. Because hopefully... What we're doing is not just singing songs, but we are standing in the presence of God, uh, just bathing in his glory, and that will actually transform you. That's why the word of God is so important, not because you need to spend 10 minutes a day or God's going to pull out the spiritual ruler and whack your wrist. No, you spend time in the word because that's where you see the glory of God. When you're in a group of other believers and you're praying together, guess where you're seeing the glory of God? You're actually seeing it through your brothers and sisters in Christ. So we, we don't grow by following the rules better. We grow by exposing ourselves to the glory of God. Now, I want to take you to chapter 4, and I just want to read for you verses 1 through 6, because I want you to see where this is going, and then we're going to slow down in verse 7 and look at 7 through the end of the chapter. Paul says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, that we have, as we have received mercy... We do not lose heart. It's interesting. Just jump down to verse 15 or 17, or I'm sorry, verse 16. Paul concludes the chapter by saying, therefore, we do not lose heart. So it begins with the fact that we don't lose heart, and it ends with the fact that we don't lose heart. And what what we're going to find out is four is describing a very difficult time in Paul's life. 
Now catch this, you guys. This is very important. The blessing of God is not the absence of trial. Do you understand that? The blessing of God is not the absence of trial. The blessing of God is the ability to maintain a relationship with God and not to lose heart, but to keep courage through the trial or in the trial. And so often we get the expectation, and and I don't know if you've heard a lot of the prosperity preachers who say if you're obeying God, you know, he's going he's gonna to give you the best parking lot in the mall. Uh, he's going to you know, you're going to buy a, a, a house and you're going to get it for half price because God is going to give you this, what, what one guy called a crown of favor, that wherever you go, everything's going to go your way and it's just going to be wonderful. If that's true, then the Chinese Christians I work with are the crummiest Christians in the world because they have a lot of problems. They have a lot of, of pressure against them. But the reality that I've seen is they're some of the most faithful people I know and they endure enormous trial so Paul goes on and he says therefore we do not lose heart but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God but by the manifestation of truth commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God all Paul is saying here is that our ministry is not what of hiding ourselves but it's one of being honest and open and sincere with people. Verse 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world... By the way, who is the God of this world? Satan, Satan, exactly. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. What Paul is saying here about the new covenant is as great as the new covenant is, not everybody is going to receive it. Why? Because Satan is actively blinding the minds of people who don't know Christ so that they won't be able to see it. Now, before we take one step further, let me just ask you, when you look at verses 3 and 4, the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing, The God of this world is blinding their minds. What is an implication that just screams out to you about our our witnessing? Anybody? Let me give you a hint. What part do you think prayer ought to play in this whole process of sharing Christ with people? If if, uh, I am sharing Christ with a person and their minds have been blinded by Satan... So their problem is not an intellectual problem. It's a spiritual problem. And it's not even an internal spiritual problem. It's external because Satan is actively and aggressively blinding their minds so that they can't understand the gospel. So one of the practical outflows of this verse is prayer is our starting, middle, and ending point of evangelism. I think... I think it is as important to pray as it is to share the gospel. I can't say that one's more important than the other because the Bible says, how will they believe unless they've heard? So we have to share the gospel. But I think we also have to pray. And we need to pray specifically against Satan. 
We don't just pretend as if Satan doesn't exist. We pray against Satan. Satan, you are blinding the minds of my best friend, and he can't see the gospel. And in the name of Jesus Christ, I rebuke you. And Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to rip those blinders off his eyes so that he can see the gospel and the glory of Christ. Okay? So we become aggressive in our prayers. We become offensive prayers rather than defensive prayers. And we start going after people first with the power of prayer, then with the power of the gospel. There are two reasons why in China, 25,000 people a day are coming to faith. 25,000 people a day. That means in four days they'd reach the Caneo Valley. I mean, that's kind of stunning, isn't it? Now, there are two reasons I know. Number one, at least the students that I work with, every morning they get up at 6 a.m. and from 6 to 7 they pray. One hour of prayer, first thing they do before they eat breakfast, before they do anything else, they pray. 7 to 8, they spend the hour in God's Word. 8 o'clock they have breakfast, 9 o'clock we get them. And by that time, they're so godly, I don't know what to do with them. You know, I mean, it's amazing, these guys. But I'll be honest, James says very bluntly, you know what? You have not because you ask not. And let me just ask you guys, this is not a raise of hands and not, and not a guilt thing at all. Uh, this is actually encouraging to me because it means if we start doing this and we're not doing it, maybe we can see God do some amazing things. But are you actively, aggressively praying for the non-believers who are in your life? Are you rebuking Satan? Amen. And this is what we need to do. Now, I'm sorry I got off base because this isn't even the message. This is just a throw in. All right. Verse 5. Paul says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. So you guys, the new covenant ministry is not about you. I need to dress up. I need to lose weight so people will want to become Christians. You don't even have to worry about that. Because new covenant ministry is not about you. It's about Jesus. You're not preaching yourself. You're preaching Jesus. And again, Satan is such a master. He says, oh, you can't witness. Your life is a mess. You know, the best witnessers I've ever met, their life is a mess. In fact, most of us, our life is a mess, isn't it? I mean... If, if you don't have struggles, there's something really wrong with your life. We, struggles are a part of life. And so Paul says, look, we're, it's not about us. It's about Jesus. Now, verse 6. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness. I love this. Going all the way back to Genesis. Let there be light. Could you imagine this universe before there was light? What a horrible, dreary, dark, ugly place the universe was. And God says, let there be light. And there was light. So the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts. You see, we were blinded before, right? And then God shone in our hearts so that we might see or to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Wow, I love that phrase. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So when you saw Christ, 
When you took Christ into your life, guess what? He is the Son of God. God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all three of them came into your life. And you know, honestly, it would be really cool if we could just stop right at verse 6. Hey, we've got the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Wow. No problem. Doggone it, Paul goes on. And this is where we're going to focus. And and the first major point of what we're going to be talking about here, let me get to this, is that in 7 through 12, the new covenant gives us the ability to have courage in trial. Now look at verse 7. This is where it gets to be kind of a downer. But, you know, it's almost like somebody really positive wrote verse 6. And then Eeyore wrote verse 7. Do you know who Eeyore is? You know, he's the dog. Oh, yeah. You know, he really. But we have this treasure in pots of clay or jars of clay. By the way, what's the jar of clay? This is my jar of clay, okay? So, six, we have this treasure. Verse seven, in jars of clay. Why did God do that? Why, why not have us kind of glow when we're Christians? You know, we walk around, we just got this glow in us, and, and everybody's going, oh, wait, where'd you get that glow? Oh, it's the light of the, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Wow, I want that. No, it's in a jar of clay. Why did God do that? Well, he tells us. So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. This is so cool, you guys. Are you weak? Do you have struggles? Do you have weaknesses? All that does is help you to be even more effective at showing people how great God is because of how weak you are. Now, you see, all of us, we're so busy. We want to shine up the jar of clay, okay? Let's get some makeup on this jar of clay. Let's, let's buff out this jar of clay, you know? Let's get it looking awesome. Then people will want to become Christians, and that's what we do. If a movie star becomes a Christian, what do we do? We put him on the speaker circuit. Hey, he's a Christian, so, and it becomes like, you know, a an ad or like an infomercial or something, you know, this handsome guy's a Christian. Well, I want to be a Christian. Or if we get, when I was a kid, we had athletes, you know, pitchers for the Dodgers who were Christians and they'd get up. They didn't know very much about Christ. Hey, I'm a Christian. Oh, everybody wants to become a Christian. Why? Because this really cool guy is a Christian. That's exactly the opposite of the way the new covenant works. The new covenant works with normal, weak, frail, flawed people Telling the world about Jesus. You see? So you don't need to shine yourself up. You don't need to wait till you've hit a certain aura of spirituality. The weaker you are, the more the contrast between your weakness and the, and the power of God becomes. I've got one guy, he'd been a, he'd been a Christian a week. It's so cool. He said, hey, I led a guy to Christ. And I, I said, you did? I almost wanted to rebuke him and say, you can't do that. You've only been a Christian a week. You, you need to go to seminars. You know, you, know you, need to, you need to be fully trained and graduated from Bible school before you can tell. He didn't know enough to know what he didn't know. He just told people what Jesus did in his life. 
He did it on a surfboard, for heaven's sakes. He was sitting on the, on the water, and the guy came next to him. He says, guess what? Jesus changed my life. The guy looked at him, what? And he, and he told him about what Jesus did, and the guy accepts Christ right on the surfboard. But now we're all sophisticated. And we know all of the Bible, and then we shut up. We educate people into silence. You guys, our limitations, verse 7 says... Show the power of God. So don't try to hide your weaknesses. In fact, learn to glory in your weaknesses. Yeah, I'm, str- I'm struggling in my marriage. I'm struggling in my life. I'm struggling here. I'm struggling all over the place. But you know what? God is great. And he's forgiven my sins. And he's choosing to remember my sins no more. And guess what? I, the Holy Spirit is doing his work in me. And soon, I'm going to be better than I am now. Because of what God's doing. Now, verses 8 and 9 are kind of an interesting verse, set of verses. And for a long time, I didn't understand this. Paul says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And I think, Eeyore, what are you doing? I mean, people are depressed enough. What are you talking about all of these hard times for? But Paul was going through a really hard time in his life. And I never understood this passage until I was about, well, 45 or 50 years old. And I'd gone through a really deep time in my life. And I realized exactly what Paul was talking about. Now, let me try to explain it to you real simple. These two verses have four sets of twos. Okay, did you notice that? Paul says, we're afflicted but not crushed. We're perplexed, not driven to despair. We're persecuted, not forsaken. We're struck down but not destroyed. The first side of each of those little doublets is what's going on externally in your life. The second set is how you're responding to those internally because of the Holy Spirit in you. So Paul says, hey, we're afflicted. That means we're pressured. Our modern word for afflicted is stress. You ever feel stressed out? Man, I'm stressed out. But, you know what? I'm not crushed. Because Paul is walking in the power of the Spirit. Now, walking in the power of the Spirit doesn't mean that God's going to deliver you from affliction. Man, Paul was hitting it big time. In fact, later on in 2 Corinthians, he's going to list all of the stuff that was going wrong in his life. And it sounds horrible. But Paul says, yeah, I'm afflicted. But you know what? With God in my life, I'm not crushed. You know how easy it is to coca. Uh, to crush a little aluminum Coke can after it's empty. You know how hard it is when it's still full? It's kind of like the Holy Spirit inside of you. Boy, if, if the Holy Spirit weren't in me, I'd be afflicted and crushed. But with the Holy Spirit in me, I, I can say with Paul, yeah, I'm afflicted. I get stressed out from time to time. But you know what? I'm not crushed. Second one, I'm perplexed. Any of you join me that there are times when you're perplexed with what God's doing? Oh, my goodness. There are so many times 
that I don't have a clue what's God, what God's doing in my life. Why are, you, why are you bringing me through this? Why don't you just ease the pressure, God, and let things go a little better for a while? I'm perplexed. I'm confused. That's another word for perplexed. But you know what? Even in my confusion, I'm not driven to despair because of the Holy Spirit that's in me. I'm persecuted. When you decide to go all out for Jesus Christ, the world is not going to stand there and go, wow, that's awesome. So glad you're a Christian. In fact, if the world is applauding you, you're probably a little too much of a milk toast. You're not being bold enough with the gospel. You're not being bold enough of living out the, the commands of Jesus Christ. Being a great Christian is not being nice. Oh, he's so nice. He never offends anyone. I told him I didn't want to hear about Jesus. He just shut right up. Oh, he's so nice. Paul stood up and, I mean, he was an equal opportunity offender. He, he offended everybody with the gospel. Now, he didn't offend people with his own offensiveness, but he did speak the gospel clearly, and that ticked people off, right? So Paul was persecuted, but you know what? In all of the difficult times he went through, Paul never got to the point where he was forsaken. Because he knew that Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Struck down actually speaks of being hit down with a club or with physical blows. Paul suffered stonings. He was beaten. He was shipwrecked. He went through all sorts of stuff. He had bruises all over his body. But guess what? Not destroyed. And I want to tell you something about this. Even when Paul was beheaded, he was not destroyed. Do you understand that? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, Paul lived his life for Jesus. And when he got to the end, Nero thought, hey, we got this guy. We just cut his head off. And Paul's up in heaven saying, I win. Struck down, but not destroyed. These two verses tell me that our struggles are given to us so that the faithfulness of God can shine in our lives. And if you can understand this, it will change your whole attitude towards trials. What does James say? Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. You know, all through my life, Christians have laughed at that verse. Yeah, right. Consider it all joy when you encounter... You do realize that James was actually serious, right? He wasn't making a joke. He wasn't saying, consider it all joy, wink, wink. I know these really stink, so don't do this. No, consider it all joy when you encounter the different kinds of trials. And I think Paul is giving an awesome reason here because it's in those trials that you will see the faithfulness of God more clearly than at any point in your life. I want you to just take a sec. As you look back in your life, when have you seen the faithfulness of God the greatest? It's in the dark times, right? I love Rob's message a couple of weeks ago about, about the disciples being in the boat and, and they, were, they were in what he called an instructional trial. 
They were right where Jesus wanted them to go to be, and they were in the middle of a storm. Now, think of the disciples, if they would have outguessed Jesus. Jesus says, get in the boat. I remember the last time we were in the boat. We got in a storm. You're not going to pull that, you know, fool me once, it's my fault. Fool me twice, you know, all, all of that kind of stuff. No, Jesus, I'm not going to fall for that one again. And think if they would have said, you know, Jesus went up to pray. Guys, let's just walk around. Let's not get in the boat. They would have missed the most amazing demonstration of the glory and power of God that they could ever imagine. Guys, it's in difficulty that we see the glory of God. And so if you can get to the point where you're looking beyond your personal comfort and you're looking to God's glory, you can actually get to the point where you're actually excited about the trials that God brings into your life. And if you want people asking you about your faith, just be someone who is excited about trials. Hey, how are you doing? You know what? I am going through the worst time in my life physically, but you know, God has been so faithful over this last month, I can't even believe it. I'm just praising God. They'll look at you like you're nuts because according to them, you are nuts. I don't see it very often, but when I see Christians get that, it is amazing. I love to see people who are yeah, I go on, I'm, saying, I'm expecting them to, to cheer them up. And I say, how are you doing? And they say, wow, I just got to share Christ with this nurse. And it's the most amazing experience. Oh, but you're dying of cancer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know that. But I got to share Christ with this nurse. And it was so cool. And I know that this is a person that understands for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Okay. Now, let's go on and look at uh, verses. Uh, this is another interesting scripture that's tough for people. Verses 10 through 12. Paul says, we are always carrying in the body, in our jar of clay, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life is at work in you now. Just if you're taking notes in verses 10 through 12, write down Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ, right? Most people were crucified, die. But nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved himself, who loved us and gave himself up for us. You guys, if you want to see life produced in other people, start living every day as a dead man. I'm crucified with Christ. Now, what that means is what Steve Larson wants is not that important. He's dead. You know, if I'm dead and you're planning my funeral, you don't have to come and ask me what colors I want for my funeral, you know. Let's see what kind of flowers would you want. I'm not going to tell you anything because I'm dead. And you see, when you're dead, your personal desires and interests aren't that important. It's what Christ wants to do through you. And so Paul says, so death works in us. Yeah. I... I, I'm not sure if if Paul were picking the experiences he'd like to pick. If he would pick, hey, 
I think I'll get thrown out of a city and stoned and left for dead. That sounds fun. Maybe I need to go to Philippi again and have people beat me, lock me up in jail, and throw away the key for a couple of days. That's not what Paul would choose, but Paul was a dead man, and so it wasn't what Paul wanted, it was what Christ wanted. So verses 13 and 15 talks about our hope for the future. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. This is why 2 Corinthians is difficult. There's a lot of difficult things to understand. That is a quote from Psalm 116, verse 10. And that quote speaks of the psalmist. We don't know who wrote this one. But he was talking about how difficult it is to face death. But in verse 8, he says, you know what? Even death, even the grave can't hold me back. And so in verse 10, he says, I believe, therefore I spoke. So what he means by this is my faith comes out of my mouth and it actually gives me hope as I speak it. Now let's keep on reading. So we also believe and also we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us up with him and will bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase in thanksgiving to the glory of God. You guys, I I hate to keep going back to the Chinese, but they are such an example of this. They are putting their lives at risk daily. So that people in Iran, Iraq, the Sudan, Saudi Arabia, Yemen... Egypt, all over the most dangerous parts in the world so that those people can hear about Jesus. Why are they doing this? Because they want to increase the thanksgiving that's going to be given to the glory of God on the day that Jesus comes back again. When you start looking beyond this life, you will find that your motivation to share Christ just skyrockets. Now, I want to jump to the last part, verses 16 through 18. These three verses are one of the most important verses in the Bible to me. After all that Paul has said, he said we're afflicted, we're struck down, we're persecuted, we're, you know, perplexed. All of these things going on in his life. Verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Oops, a little heavy on my... For though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I want to explain this to you, and I hope this is going to become as precious to you as it is to me. Verse 18 is what controls all of 16 through 18. In other words, everything that's happening in verses 16 and 17 are because Paul is doing what he says in verse 18. What's he doing? Paul is choosing every day to focus on things that are unseen, not on things that are seen. What are things that are seen? 
my goodness, I got bills to pay and I don't have any money to pay them. Uh, I'm about to lose my job. I just found out that I have cancer. Uh, I just found out that, that my kidneys are failing. Uh, my house is falling. You know, all of the things that we deal with on a day-by-day basis, those are all the things that are seen. And guess what? All of those things are temporal. If you are in the hospital tomorrow morning with congestive heart failure, you know what? That is temporal. If you die from that, we will miss you but it will not be a tragedy to you. Do you understand that? We get mixed up because in America, we are so scared of death. It's because it's become so unusual. I mean, we, you know, children don't die very much in America. And, and people, we, we, we are freaked out by death. And Paul is saying, I want you to develop a habit every day to turn your attention away from the things that you can see to the things you can't see. What are the things I cannot see? I cannot see God. You know, with my physical eyes, I've never seen God. I'd love to. I, I've never seen Jesus. Remember what Jesus said to Thomas? He said, Thomas, uh, you know, you, you believe now because you see. But he was speaking of us when he said, blessed are those who haven't seen, and yet they still believe. So Jesus said there's a special blessing for us because I I am entrusting my whole life to a God I have never seen with my physical eyes. I've never heard with my physical ears. I've never touched him. And yet I've devoted my whole life to this guy. The promises of God are unseen. So I'm out of money and I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills. And yet, so that's the seen, but the unseen is Philippians 4.19 where it says, my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. So if I focus on the seen, my heart's full of anxiety. If I focus on the unseen, my heart is at peace. I get in an auto accident and I go, oh, God, how could you let this happen? This is terrible. But God says, I will cause all things to work together for good to those who love me and are called according to my purpose. Oh, I focus on the unseen rather than the seen. My heart is at peace. I can be filled with joy even in a difficult and even a tragic situation. So now, what happens when we focus on the unseen rather than the seen? Number one, we do not lose heart. That's not true of every Christian, is it? Do you know Christians who lose heart? Phew, see them all the time. They're always losing heart. They're going through troubles or they're seeing things going on in our nation and they're just, ah, what's the use? They are the Eeyore Christians of the world. But Paul says, hey, I don't lose heart. Why? Because he's focusing on the unseen rather than the seen. The second thing, this is so exciting. You all know that your bod is decaying, right? Is there anybody who doesn't yet know that? All right. 
Some of you in your 20s are saying, nah, I'm just getting better and better and better. Do you know the day you were born, you started dying? You know that, right? The day you were born, you started dying. And you have some dying stuff going on in you, and you've got some rebuilding stuff in you. And when you're growing, the rebuilding stuff is a little stronger than the dying stuff. So you keep getting better, you know, a little stronger. Then you hit that point in, in City Slickers. I don't know if any of you remember that old movie. Yeah. Such a funny line. He said, have you ever realized that the best you're ever going to be is behind you? Now, for Christians, that's only true physically. Because look at what Paul says. Though our outer self, our body, is wasting away, our inner self, my inner man, the, the creation of Christ in me, is being renewed Day by day. You guys, this is the new covenant at work. I am not as strong as I was 20 years ago. I'm not as fast as I was 20 years ago. Uh, There's a whole lot of things different about me now than me 20 years ago. But you know what? My faith is stronger today. My love for Jesus is stronger today. And you know, one thing that Connie and I have realized, and we just, we have learned how to trust in the Lord with all your heart. You remember that scripture? And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. We are living that more today than at any point in our lives, and we are loving it. Because you know what? God's word works. It is so cool. So my outer man, not so great. My inner man, awesome. And getting better and stronger every day. But that only happens when your focus is on things unseen rather than things seen. If you're focusing on the world, your inner man is not going to get renewed day by day. Your, your inner man is going to be getting weaker because you're getting more influenced by the world. But if you're focusing on the things unseen, your inner man is getting stronger every day. The next thing, we see our trials very differently. Now, you, know, you guys know all that Paul went through. Listen to what he calls him. Light, momentary affliction. Give me a break. You were beat up, you were stoned, you were persecuted, you were hated, you were spit on, you were shipwrecked. Paul, that is not light momentary affliction. That's the worst thing that could ever happen to anybody. And Paul calls it light momentary affliction. You know why he calls it that? He, he has a scales. My afflictions now, the glory that I'm going to receive when I stand before Jesus. There's no comparison. He says, for our light momentary affliction is producing or preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And what will happen when you start focusing on things unseen is you'll see your trials in the perspective of eternity. And it shrinks them out down. Let me give you a real simple illustration. You know what a zoom lens is is on a camera, right? 
If I, if I have it wide angle, I can get all of you in my shot. But if I zoom in, oh, Marty will fill the screen. And that's quite, a, that's quite a sight to see Marty fill the screen, okay? Now, let's say Marty is a trial. And I zoom in to where the trial fills my whole perspective. What's going to happen to me? Oh, this is awful. I'm never going to get through this. I can't get over this. This is too much. I can't handle it. I think I'll lose heart and sit down and give up. But zoom out. Now I see the past, the faithfulness of God in my life in the past. I see the faithfulness and the promises of God for the future. I see that after I die, I'm going to be with Jesus forever. And all of a sudden, my, my trial is about that big in my Zoom lens. And that's what focusing on eternity will do for you, is it will bring your trials into the perspective that God wants them to be, and you'll have the strength and the courage to keep getting over them. That's so cool, you guys. This stuff really works. And the final thing is, if you learn to live your life with the eternal perspective, focusing on the unseen, you are going to stand before Jesus and you are going to get rewards beyond your wildest imagination. Now, some of you, oh, we shouldn't live for the rewards. We should only live, you know, because we love God. You know what? That's not God's word. God wants you to live for the rewards. He wants you to love his rewards. So let me give you a little, just a thing to do. Real simple. Sometime this week, I'd just like you to divide a paper in half and make up two lists. Everything in your life that is seen. My car, my home, my, my job, my bills, my 401k, my, all, of the, all of the stuff. And then write down everything in your life that is unseen. The forgiveness of God, the Holy Spirit, God the Son who died and gave himself for me, eternal life, the promises of God, the truth of God's word that I'm building my life, all of the things that you can't see. And just start making a daily focus to put your mind on the things that you can see. 2 Corinthians 4 will give you the courage to weather difficult times in ways that you never could imagine. On Sunday, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 5, which is kind of the cool news about what we have to look forward to. And it really gets kind of exciting. So that's what we're going to be looking at on Sunday. But I hope, I hope this has been a challenge to you. And I, one of the things I just want to encourage you to do is take time to read 2 Corinthians 4 over and over and over again. The wording is difficult, isn't it? I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there that's hard to understand. But if you read it over and over again, it'll just start to sink in and make sense to you. And you'll learn that living according to the new covenant is... Man, it is, it is so freeing and exciting to learn to do that. So, Father, as we uh, go our separate ways this week, I just pray that you'd give us the courage to learn to focus on the things that are not seen because those are the things that matter. Those are the things that are eternal. 
Father, the souls of people around us are unseen. We see the bodies, but we don't see the souls. Their eternal destiny is unseen. And I just pray that those would become the things that matter most to us. In Jesus' name, amen.